0: The Guardian.
1: Hello and welcome to The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, whatever happened to America's recovery summer? As he unveils a package of new ideas, we ask what Barack Obama can possibly do to put his country back on course. And he's been called the unacceptable face of banking by government ministers, So why has Bob Diamond got the top job at Barclays? Plus, renowned economist Harjun Chang explodes some of the myths about capitalism. This is The Business from The Guardian. And in studio this week, we've got The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, Dan Milmo, our transport correspondent, and making a welcome debut appearance before leaving for the USA, columnist Hadley Freeman. Hadley, why are you leaving us? Is it our bad dentistry?
0: Oh, you know, I just, gave, I just gave it up after all. I've been here 21 years. I, it's time to accept I'm never going to get that British accent. So it's time to make like the US Army, give up on this hopeless mission, get out. The end of the occupation. Back. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so yes, yeah, so that's it.
1: OK, well, it's with America that we begin. The White House promised that this would be the summer of recovery,
0: but it hasn't quite worked
1: out that way. Unemployment's at its highest in over a quarter of a century and still rising, while the housing market has barely come out of its subprime slump. Let's begin with a view from our man in Washington, Richard Adams. The jobs figures highlight the two
2: biggest problems that Barack Obama has now. One is that he's running out of time, and the other is that he's running out of options. And the two combine to make a, a sort of a perfect storm for the White House, that they will find it very difficult to extricate them themselves from. There is now fewer than 60 days until the midterm elections on November the 2nd, when obviously every member of the House of Representatives and about a third of the Senate are up for re election. The Republicans will almost certainly, without doubt, take control of the House of Representatives. And I imagine they'll administer what you might describe as an ass kicking to the Democrats in that regard. And once the Republicans are in control of either one or both houses of Congress, he will find it extremely difficult to do anything and almost certainly impossible uh, for any additional fiscal spending or stimulus spending. The Republicans will oppose flatly anything along those lines, and they will only be in favor of tax cuts. And that's now what the White House is considering. There's a research and design tax credit of about $150 billion that they want to extend, and they'll be looking at uh, tax cuts for small businesses, especially on employment taxes, to make it easier for companies to hire staff. But outside of that, he has almost no opportunity to do anything else. The second problem in terms of the options is, of course, given the state of the American economy and the size of the deficit and the concern that that raises amongst people, even Democrats... There really isn't much room left. Last year's fiscal package was about $800 billion, and that is still working its way through the system. Even the opportunity for tax cuts will be limited by the strain that they'll put on the budget. The Federal Reserve and Ben Bernanke have a similar problem. They've done as much as they can. Interest rates are very, very low, other than a second round of quantitative easing, which they say that they're ready to do if the situation gets worse. Again, they've got very little ammunition left in their locker as well. So in terms of direct actions that the government can take, their options are very limited. Richard
1: Adams there. Larry, we're more than two years past the start of the official start of a recession in the US and the economy by now should be in fourth or fifth gear. What's gone wrong? It should be. I mean, traditionally, the American
3: economy comes out of recession like a steam train. It really normally comes out all guns blazing, creates lots of jobs, growth picks up very, very quickly. This time it hasn't happened. um, And there are two or three big reasons for that. One is Key key to it is the state of the housing market. Millions of people are having their house either foreclosed or they're in negative equity there, and that's leading to high levels of unemployment. It's high structural levels of unemployment in the U.S. and that's that's holding back the recovery. So I think that Obama needs to address three or four big structural issues if he's going to actually turn turn things around. One is the housing market. Another is the level of real wages, which have been held back for many many years, which is stunting recovery of consumer spending. Another is the ingrained trade deficit in the U.S. And a fourth is the fact that the stimulus package probably wasn't big enough. So, if, he, if he, you know, he needs to get to grips with those four issues.
1: Hadley, the day after President Obama was elected, you wrote a very striking piece for The Guardian in which you said that uh, you were once again proud to be an American. And I, I think then, actually, you, you summed up some of the uh, mood of optimism. What's happened to that?
0: Yeah, it's been very disappointing, really. I mean, personally, I'm not that I'm afraid I'm one of the East Coast elites. And I'm not that disappointed with Obama. I think he's done quite a lot of good things. He has been absolutely hammered by the far right, who have a far better propaganda mechanism than the left do. The uh, Democrats are very wary and very sort of nervy about getting their hands dirty. And they've also got that real liberal guilt about fearing uh, attacking the right because they then get accused of being mean and snobby and cruel to poor people. You know, they don't know what it's like in their nice houses in Martha's Vineyard, when actually the right is led by people like Rush Limbaugh, who are so phenomenally wealthy, or Glenn Beck, and these people who send out these messages, like for example, about this terrifying nature of socialised healthcare that do nothing but harm to those audiences due to, uh, to the lower middle classes. He hasn't been as forthright as he should have been, definitely. He's been too concerned with keeping his hands clean, that sort of do thing. Do
1: you buy that line that he went from being a great national orator to being a college professor almost <laughs>
0: overnight? No, I don't think so. I think, yes, he was a great orator during the election he probably hasn't been as great since he hasn't needed to be really I don't Thing. maybe He should have been better. There have been times when he, I think he's just not trusted his judgement enough when he was really hemming and hawing about the whole BP oil spill and then he did that unbelievably cringy photo call soon afterwards swimming in the ocean with Sasha which just reminded me of that time during the whole mad cow d- disease scare when Gummer, whoever it was fed his child a hamburger. It was so lame and so against everything that Obama should be.
3: He spent a lot of time getting healthcare through as well, an awful lot of political capital and political, t- political time has been spent on healthcare which probably in retrospect Might have been better spent on the economy. I mean, there are now, I don't really agree with Richard that there is nothing that he can do now. There are things he could do. He could let the Bush tax cut expire, for example, and use that money for bigger infrastructure projects or he could use it for direct subsidies to underpin the housing market to help ordinary people so I don't actually think that he has completely run out of policy space I think the time thing is more more the point really that you know you come into office Hadley's optimism is a case in point you come in with a clean slate Mm -hmm. Bush administration was completely discredited there were lots of things he could have done in his first three months when he had the wind in his sails it's a whole lot more difficult to do that 18 months, two years into a presidency which, in which the economy is starting to flounder and you start to get, as presidents, start to get the blame for that.
0: I think he's just been so terrified by the whole Fox News attack and Sarah Palin. I don't know why they're so on the back foot about this. And especially after the whole non-ground zero, non-mosque debates. I mean, the fact that he then sort of backtracked on that after having said, you know, America's a place where there should be religious freedom, to then suddenly going, oh, well, they should have sensitivity. I mean, that was so that was so lame, that was so weak looking, I thought of him. Whatever
4: side of the political spectrum you're on, the default reactionary line is the easiest one to to hold and to propagate and it seems historically if you're on the right you're in the best position for that kind of discourse and um, the left has always been caught out by by that I mean the the arguments about fiscal stimulus seem quite nuanced and fascinating but you need I mean it's not as much fun as
1: a radio phone-in in in Milwaukee. Yeah but Larry actually on that argument about the uh, economic stimulus you're saying he's still got some room to move but I'm I'm struck by what uh Hadley says about the the attack of the right. Because the whole charge of the right against Obama is you tried all this government intervention and it failed. And then you have on the left, you've got people like Krugman saying, well, that you tried all this government intervention. The problem was it wasn't big enough. shot from both sides. Krugman's
3: right, obviously. I mean, the, the recession in the US would be much, much worse had it not been for the for the fiscal stimulus and the zero interest rates and the quantitative easing. I mean, the, the, the right's argument seems to be that you know, the government should have washed its hands of the economy in just the same way as Herbert Hoover did in 1931. And and the the, the consequence would have been exactly the same. America instead of having 9.6% unemployment would have 25% unemployment. Instead of having a fall in GDP of 4%, it would have had a fall in GDP of 20%. You know, the the people on the right are are absolutely bonkers when they say that what the the country needed was less stimulus. Obviously what it needed was more stimulus to really get it going again, and that's the point.
4: You need a sort of ghost of Christmas present, Christmas carol style to show people what the US economy would have looked like without this. I mean, there's one one study says 4.8 million more full-time equivalent jobs were created by the stimulus. Well, what would the economy look and like without that?
3: Lot of, and there's quite a lot of evidence of infrastructure spending working. If you go across parts of the US now, you can see the bridges being built, the roads being repaired, and quite a lot of the stimulus is still to be spent. About 40% of it is still to be spent. But they'd probably, it just needs to be a bigger package. It, it, it's quite clear that the size of the problem...
1: Was so great that actually the, the the policy response, big though it was, was not big enough. If you try and sell to voters, and you've got the midterms coming up in in a couple of months, if you try and sell to voters, it could have been worse. That doesn't tend to work. I mean, you could ask Gordon Brown for proof of that.
0: Yeah, it's not it's not a very uh, exciting sounding argument. But the, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the midterms because there are a lot. Of, there's you know everyone saying that the right is going to win so much, and the Republicans have have the wind in their sails now. But it'll be interesting to see if the Tea Party actually splits it because there are a lot of people out there who are Republicans but they're not tea partyists. They're not, i.e. full-on mentalists um, and, full- and and complete <laughs> racists, which is what the tea party essentially is. And they know how to spell a, a placard correctly, which nobody in the tea party seems to be able to do. So they're more John
1: McCain than Sarah Palin?
0: Yeah, well, though John McCain is certainly doing his best to get as close to Sarah Palin now. Belatedly, two years too late, that team seems to be united all of a sudden. It's not It's not a romantic kind of package, but he's just got to shout harder. I know he doesn't like to. I know he feels that it's disgusting. And But basically... He, he needs to shout more because these people are shameless
1: and finally shamelessly exploiting the fact that you you go back and forth to america um the figures that we get out of america look so bad what's it actually like over there
0: uh, it was really depressing when I was there earlier this year, actually, and then the year before I was there for three months, and there really was a feel in New York, which is where i 'm from and where I was staying, that there was nothing good. there was nothing to look forward to. The shops were all shutting um, on the upper East side, which is traditionally the very ritzy area of New York. I remember just walking down seventy second in Lex, and all the shops were shut, you know all these expensive children 's toy stores and expensive fabric stores up now I agree that saying this concept this is not a national tragedy that <laughs> expensive children 's toy stores are shutting. But uh it felt like being back in the seventies when there was suddenly riding on the streets that what people that's what people were sort of talking about was that it you, we could see some- sort of, you know empty shop fronts essentially everywhere anecdotally,
4: I've just come back from California, and I was thinking about the stimulus when I was there. I was driving around quite a bit, and, and you were thinking about the physical stimulus while you drive i was because um you know you always take your job with you and uh I just saw a lot of roadworks, a lot of highways being dug up and paved over and a lot of signs saying this was brought to you yeah. by um I think it was the Recovery Act yeah. package. Yeah. And I did think Hmm. when when this money runs out is road building like a viable industry going forward it's not healthcare or green technology it 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 just felt like a one off shot in the arm and it, you know it's literally constructive in that in that that's what they were doing but it didn't feel like a long term well you know, a you'd hope
3: a, a i mean it's it's still being spent and b you'd hope that by the time it has been spent that the private sector would be recovering i mean that's the point it it provides some sort of bridge between deep recession and private sector recovery that i mean that's what it did in the 1930s and That's what the hope is this time. The fact is, it's probably not not big enough economically and therefore it's not big enough politically. And that's the thing you need to start getting some signs of the economy moving, some really hard numbers, and that would actually turn the politics around for Obama, I think.
1: Just a few months ago, Bob Diamond was labelled the unacceptable face of banking by former Business Secretary Peter Manderson. This week, it was announced that he's to run Barclays Bank. Speculation has been mounting that investment banking will be the company's main focus now, not its traditional high street business. Larry, what do you make of this appointment?
3: I think it shows that Barclays is not going to take banking reform lying down. I think that there's a big fight coming between the government and the big banks, and Barclays have made it quite clear by appointing Diamond to be their boss that they're up for the fight because... You know, he is the exemplar of investment banking and all its successes over the last five, ten years. Barclays managed to come through the downturn just about without requiring any government assistance and the government now has a commission in place which is looking at whether you should split up the banks into retail and investment arms. Barclays obviously doesn't want that to happen, HSBC doesn't want that to happen and this is uh, an indication that there is going to be one almighty fight between the
1: Treasury and the banks and it's a question I think of who blinks first in that fight. Dan, two years after Lehman Brothers collapsed and we entered into an economic crisis spurred by investment bankers, investment bankers seem to be back in charge of Barclays Bank and probably in charge of HSBC too. It's galling, isn't it? It's a bit like um,
4: when they gave um, the Nobel Peace Prize to Henry Kissinger, isn't it? (laughs) I said, you know, satire is dead. It feels like the impossibility of implementing meaningful structural reform in the banking system if one of the big names turns to someone who made their career out of a section of the banking industry that contributed massively to the crisis we're in. I don't know how banking can slip its skin, as it were. If not Diamond, who should it be turning to? Are there obvious names in the banking industry or do you need a Krugman uh, or someone to come in to do it? As you said two years ago, we were told that you know investment banks
3: had, had had ruined the world and that nothing would ever be the same again. It seems like you know it is exactly the you know déjà vu all over again, isn't it? We've got the same people, exactly the same people in charge, yeah. and and just really just throwing down the gauntlet to the government, saying come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Um, and yeah. I, I mean, it's somewhat, I think that you know, in answer to my question, who will blink first? Probably the government.
4: Yeah, so it's basically saying you put us back
1: on the hill, now try and come on the top of it again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just. Hadley is part of the reason because actually people who run banks are pretty anonymous, and you know newspapers can put Bob Diamond on the front of their newspaper, on the front of their pages, for all they want. But actually, the public don't really care, do
0: they? No, they don't really care. It's like the way I keep thinking I need to change my bank because it cheats me so badly, and then in the end you just can't be faffed. For those of us who aren't in the financial pages, they do all seem like these anonymous you know, grace to people. Although I have to say the name Bob Diamond certainly does stick in your memory when you read that he once got a £22 million bonus. And you can imagine him just sort of spending a Wednesday evening rolling around in diamonds in his oak-lined <laughs> vault in his house on Kensington Palace Road.
1: And Larry, this, is, this has been interpreted as Barclays uh, privileging its investment banking arm over its retail banking arm. We've also had suggestions from HSBC that they might relocate away from London. This kind of exodus of Britain's banking industry, how much credence do you give to that? Not much. You don't think it will happen? No. I think it's just posturing and
3: manoeuvring in terms of putting pressure on the government. I mean, the, the idea is that the, if the government continues with its banking reform, we will leave the country. I just don't believe that's going to happen. I mean, they've got too much at stake here. Barclays is such a big British name. I mean, HSBC possibly, but Barclays, I don't see that happening, now.
1: Now, ha Chang is that rare thing. He's a Cambridge academic who's also a renowned iconoclast. He's an economist who doesn't think economists should run an economy. Well, the Fenland Dissident has a new book out and it's called 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. We got him in to do a special free sample of the book. Here he is telling us why there's no such thing as a free market. In
5: 1819, a new law to regulate child labor was tabled in the British Parliament. The proposed regulation was incredibly light touch by modern standards. It would ban the employment of young children, those under the age of 9. Older children aged between 10 and 16 would still be allowed to work, but with their working hours restricted to 12 per day. Yes, they were really going soft on those kids. The new rules only apply to cotton factories, which are recognized to be exceptionally hazardous to workers' health. The proposal, however, was met by a stiff opposition by those free marketeers, who saw it as undermining the sanctity of freedom of contract and thus destroying the very foundation of the free market. Their argument said, the children want and need to work, and the factory owners want to employ them, what is the problem? Few people today, including the most enthusiastic supporters of free market policies, would object to regulation of child labor. Like beauty, freedom of a market is in the eyes of the beholder. That is, there is no scientific way to define a free market. All markets are propped up by numerous regulations on what can be sold and bought, who can sell and buy them, and how the exchange may be conducted. Free market economists like to portray all regulations as politically motivated interferences in the free workings of a natural system. However, when there is no way to scientifically define a free market, free market positions are as political as any other position. Breaking away from the illusion of market objectivity is the first step towards understanding capitalism.
1: June. you've just read us a bit from your new book, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. And in that, you tell us about why washing machines are more important (laughs) to humanity than the internet. You tell us about why good economic policy doesn't
5: require economists. What do these 23 things, what do they have in common? Well, what they have in common is uh, that we have been influenced by this uh, free market ideology, at least uh, for the last uh, 20, 30 years. And this ideology has uh, told a lot of things to people, which uh, in my view are at best a partial truth and sometimes uh, a complete myth. And this book uh, tries to destroy uh, some of these myths and uh, tell people how capitalism really works and how things can be made better and so on, and hopefully in a very user-friendly way. So I would uh, describe this book as uh, a light-hearted book as a serious purpose.
1: And it's 23 things which are sort of bound together by the idea that actually to run a good economy, a good society, what you need is plenty of markets and very little in terms of government action and state. But your background is as a development mm-hmm. economist. How much of a role in the developing economies do you think these free market myths have played?
5: The interesting thing is that uh, free market policies have been actually implemented much more thoroughly in developing countries because... These policies hurt a lot of people and in developing countries with weaker democratic institutions and so on, this was a lot easier to implement very unpopular policies. And the effect as a result have been more striking there. I mean, even in the rich countries, the last three decades of free market policies have reduced growth, increased inequality, created all kinds of financial crises. When you actually look at the developing countries, especially regions like Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa, which have been forced to implement a lot of free-market policies by institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, they have basically experienced very low, and in the African case, virtually no growth. They're experiencing one financial crisis after another, so that actually the impact of these free-market policies have been a lot worse. In the developing countries, mainly because that actually these policies are implemented more thoroughly there.
1: If there's so much wrong with free markets and this, are, and this is a kind of free market fundamentalism you're talking about, what would you like to replace it with? A bit of Marx, perhaps?
5: Yeah, I'm not uh, calling for some kind of uh, Marxist uh, revolution. I, uh, what I am calling for is basically restoring balances in our economy. For example, the, the balance between market and the state. I mean, both market and the state have important roles to play in our economic life. Unfortunately, the free market also said the government is part of the problem rather than solution. And therefore, uh, we have uh, increased the domain of the market far too much. You know, we need to also restore balance between finance and real economy, if you like. So uh, we need to rein in the financial sector. I'm not uh, one of those people who say uh, the financial sector is uh, something that we need to destroy. but we need to restore that balance. We also need to restore balance between manufacturing and services. You know, a lot of countries in the last uh, 20, 30 years have been lulled into this belief that we now live in post-industrial knowledge economy and therefore making things uh, do not matter anymore if uh, manufacturing declines is only a positive sign. But actually, uh, there's a lot of uh, problem with uh, industrial decline in countries like uh, the UK and the United States. And we need to pay our attention back to more boring things like uh, investing in machinery, infrastructure, worker skills and so on. You know, it's a total myth that uh, we can now uh, live simply on ideas and uh, we don't need to worry about manufacturing.
1: Okay, so we've established that there are a lot of free market myths. We've established that you're not a closet Marxist. We've established that you want to redraw the lines between state and markets, between financial industry and real industry. Where do you want to redraw these lines? Where do you want to put them? Is there some kind of, ratio that you've got in your head?
5: <laughs> no, I mean, exactly what is the right uh, division between these uh, different domains will depend on what kind of country you are. I mean, uh, what kind of uh, strengths and weaknesses you have, uh, what are the values uh, that you pursue, what is your vision of a good society. So, I mean, uh, one, actually, that is uh, one of the messages of the book. I mean, there's no single way to run a good, economy or good society. I mean, there are many different ways. And different ways have uh, different strengths and weaknesses. The problem is that in the last three decades, we have been told that there's only one way, which is free market. And all the other ways uh, have to be abolished. And obviously that supposedly best way of the running capitalism has uh, landed us in the biggest financial crisis in two, three generations.
1: The phrase you use in your book is that these questions will be s- settled as part of a political exercise mm-hmm. and that we have to have arguments about exactly. rather than rely upon mm-hmm. textbooks mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. academic experts. If there was a view of the world uh, and how to run an economy which came from Washington and Westminster, mm-hmm. which has governed our lives for the last 30 years, where does the alternative view of the world come from at the moment? Does it come from the Beijing Politburo? Does it come from the Delhi
5: Planning Commission? Oh, no. I mean, there's no one right view. I mean... Actually thinking that there is one right view has been one of the major problems of the last uh, 30 years. I mean, dissent was quashed and, you know, I mean, that that we often criticize the Chinese government for shutting up critics. But I think uh, when it comes to free market policies, uh, Western governments uh, have been no better. I think uh, what we need is a debate. I'm not saying that I have solutions to everything. I mean, I don't even pretend that in the book. But you know when there are so many falsities uh, floating around as facts we really need to bring this out uh, into the open and have a political debate and through that process we'll forge some consensus yeah? but in order to do that we need to wake up people a bit yeah because a lot of people have withdrawn into their private domains on the ground that well these are all very complex technical issues you know, the world is like that because it uh, has to be like that. There's a whole internet revolution going on and yeah, the emerging markets and BRICS and whatnot. But actually, when you look at it closely, things have happened only because they were designed that way by people with the power to make uh, big decisions in governments, in corporations, and in financial markets. Yeah? Because once you accept all the terms of debate set by the powerful people, and there's no point in debating because uh, they are going to set the terms of debate in such a way that uh, they always win. So we need to uh, start from undermining those uh, fundamental assumptions and uh, theoretical perspectives uh, held by those people. That was Harjun Chang, and his new book, 23 Things They Don't Tell
1: You About Capitalism, is published by Alan Lane. And that's it for this week's podcast. We're taking a break next week, so we'll see you in a fortnight. Thanks to my guests, Larry Elliott, Dan Milmo and Hadley Freeman. To produce was Ian Chambers. My name's Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening.
0: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.